you're listening to Square One, a podcast where we interview entrepreneurs, investors, and executives at the cutting edge of business. And I'm your host, Ramin Shah. No-code is a trend that's powered much of the internet since the days of Dreamweaver. However, in 2020, no-code is making a comeback and at a stronger pace than ever before. The world operates on code, but only every one in 400 understand it. Imagine if only every one in 400 people could write. The world would be an incredibly different place. This week, we're joined by Vlad Magdalene, founder and CEO of Webflow, one of the pioneers of the no-code movement. Vlad recently raised $72 million from Excel partners to scale his vision into reality. And we touched on a number of topics in this conversation, dealing with rejection in the early days, the irrationality to keep going when things looked bleak, how he grew to $20 million in ARR with limited outside financing, why he raised a monster round from Excel, and why he believes this is the inflection point for no-code. At the end of the discussion, we finished out by talking about gratitude. Vlad came to the U.S. as a refugee from Russia at nine. Gratitude has shaped his outlook on privilege and the real priorities in life. This conversation was a ton of fun. A lot of the folks we have on the podcast are winning in an objectively massive way. Vlad is a genuinely good guy, and it's awesome to see him specifically win. Welcome, Vlad. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, Vlad, really excited to have you on the show today and, and dive pretty deeply into Webflow uh, and especially how you're building a behemoth in the no-code space, you know, fresh off the backs of a $72 million Series A led by Excel. Let's kick off with what Webflow is and how you founded the company. Sure. Uh, Webflow, we um, think of it as its new category. We call it visual software development. Um, where we're a platform where people can create the things that typically you would need engineers for. Uh, We're starting with websites and web applications that are mainly presentational, things that are like CMS heavy um, and uh, kind of more marketing heavy, but moving more and more into full-on applications, full-on services. Uh, But we started as a basic website builder. Like our aspirations originally were, you know, how do we make a better Wix or a better Weebly or a better Squarespace? Um, And we moved more and more into this professional um, startup use case where, you know, it's well beyond what you can do with other templatized solutions like those other services that I mentioned um, and a lot closer to all the professional workloads that people uh, would sort of like do on Squarespace, uh, sorry, on WordPress or on uh, like code-based deployments. Um, our entire mission is to be able to do that kind of powerful um applications and deployments without a developer. Um, and the way that it started actually, like uh, Webflow started four different times, believe it or not. Uh, and each each time got a little closer to what you see today. Uh, originally back in 2005, the first iteration was more of a backend um, visualization tool where, you know, I saw where tools like Ruby on Rails were going and wanted to build a, a visual layer that saved saved me some time as a developer. And then over time, as I kept working on more and more sites for clients um, and started working pretty closely with my brother, who was a, just purely a designer, didn't know how to code. Um, over the years, especially in 2012, where this current uh, iteration started, um, nailed down this, this final direction of how do we build entire, um, entire websites, entire applications, completely visually by a designer, by somebody closer to a designer than a developer. Um, and I mean, we've had a lot of ups and downs in that time. And I think there's many different side stories there, but I think that's the, the high level, um, the high level story. 
So let's let's dive into the timing piece uh, and, and your point on you know having started the business almost four different times. Uh, you know, recently at the at the A sixteen Z summit, Mark Andreessen had a had a pretty interesting comment where he said that you know the dominant the dominant thought process that they carry at Andreessen Horowitz now is you know believing when evaluating startup ideas. It's really not as much of a function of whether the idea is correct or not, but it's rather it's it's mostly a function of timing, right? And it's easy to look at the present moment in time, you know, especially off the backs of a large fundraise and believe, you know, Webflow is always destined to be runaway success, but you alluded to it. You tried to start the business, you know, four different times. Talk, talk a little bit more about that and why the timing of, you know, building and scaling the company is so apt uh, right now. Yeah, that's a great, um, and right now, you know, the last time we started, it was seven years ago. Uh, and even, <laughs> even then it didn't, didn't feel like the, the right time in, in many cases, but, um, timing is so crucial. Like some, Dreamweaver was exactly what Webflow is supposed to be, right? It was a, um, what you could call Dreamweaver, a visual development platform, uh, that was around, around the year 2000, right? And the whole idea was how do we empower people to, uh, build these things, uh, without, without writing code, just using drag and drop. But, uh, you know, kind of that, that application fizzled out and, and that didn't really take off. Um, I think there's a, and then in 2005, when I was first getting started, like there was no concept of front end applications, right? You either have to uh, build something um, that you download, like a software application, or you have to build your own browser, or uh, you kind of have a more traditional web app where, you know, it's like basic forms and you hit a submit button. It's not, it doesn't really feel like Photoshop or like a more sophisticated application. So it, it really was a matter of timing in 2012 when, um, this was right as Chrome 1.0 came out and, you know, Safari was based on the same uh, kind of WebKit code base and Google Maps had proven that you could build some pretty sophisticated things in the browser and like Ajax became a thing. Um, so a lot of the technologies weren't even ready um, in the previous iterations of Webflow. And there's another big aspect to Webflow success in terms of like the negative side of that timing, because when we were starting to build uh, build the product in 2012, there was some sort of, um, no other companies had, uh, abstracted this or created tooling around the idea of responsive design, sort of, uh, you know, building websites that, uh, work well in many different resolutions. Cause you know, iPads were relatively new, uh, mobile was relatively new still. Uh, but then the, the, the entire ecosystem of, you know, developers, entrepreneurs, uh, investors, they were talking about mobile. Everything was mobile, mobile, mobile. Um, so all these other companies were looking in a different direction. And to a degree, it felt to us like it was the wrong timing of like building something for creating websites and web applications. Um, but we didn't have any other skills. Like we knew how to build web apps uh, and we kind of wanted to abstract that. And at the time it felt like really like the timing was wrong. Um, and it only was over the last seven years as um, you know, more and more things started being built in HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. And, you know, some of the, pro like the web platform got uh, caught up in a sense to a lot of the things that you can do on mobile applications. Uh, more and more people started to see the promise of, well, hey, like mobile apps are not the end-all be-all, right? And um, in some cases, they're actually uh, kind of a, a hindrance to user adoption because you have to get somebody to find your app, install your app. You have to, you know, be... Uh, find ways to promote it, et cetera. And, and we started seeing more and more companies switch over completely to kind of web-based um, approaches. Even, even when uh, on a mobile uh, device, 
users didn't really notice. So now there's something called progressive web apps, which kind of developed over this, this time period where um, to a user experiencing your site, it might feel like a mobile app, but everything is implemented using web technologies. Um, so I think we were really lucky to be in that sort of um, sweet spot of not many people paying attention to the web development space at the, at the time that we started. And this new sort of relatively new practice of responsive design among developers becoming popular, but no tooling existing um, that, that addressed address that need. Um, and I think if either one of those was missing at the time and if browsers weren't powerful enough to build a product inside of them, which a, web, a tool like Webflow actually requires that it's built in a browser, you know, without us like rebuilding our own browser, uh, all those things lined up correctly. Um, and even, you know, I started Webflow, the previous iteration in 2007, it was the same idea, but we just weren't able to build uh, the product that we wanted because uh, browsers weren't powerful enough to be uh, to even support that kind of product back then. And so you've got these multiple technology layers, right? But then I think let's let's actually rewind back to 2012, 2013. You alluded to it. You know, mobile was the craze. You, you've talked about how, you know, being in one of the early OIC batches, you talked to a number of investors in the early days and folks, it was pretty binary, right? Folks would either get it and say it wasn't powerful enough or they wouldn't mm-hmm. get it and they said it was too complicated. What did you yep. learn about yourself and, and your guys as a founding team you know, through that face of constant rejection, you know, by so-called experts on whether or not your business or really your view of the world, you know, would work or not. Honestly, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, that cut and dry back then. You know, when we had a lot of investors tell us, Hey, we had some developers try this out on our team and it's not powerful enough. And then we had, you know, somebody that was uh, less technical um, try it and they said it was way too overwhelming that that really got to us like we would walk around the building um, you know this office that we were renting in Mountain View and just question the entire premise because uh, we knew we had a, a pretty powerful product that we we knew solved a specific problem but all those questions made us um, made us reconsider whether there's an actual market there like whether it's so niche that we're going to have to pivot into something like, um, you know, closer to Squarespace, something more template driven, something more vertical uh, and a lot easier. Um, and I think it was just the, the fact that we were able to slowly but surely uh, get more user adoption that gave us more confidence that, hey, maybe we just, you know, need to go a little longer and build like the next few features. And for us, it was, you know, we kind of had all of our hopes on the CMS, uh, this visual CMS that, that we wanted to build. Um, to see if that was indeed like before we dropped everything and kind of like pivoted the product to be a much more, you know, consumer friendly, easy to use uh, product. Like, let's see how the CMS works out. And thankfully, by the time we, we built it, we had enough uh, of a revenue base to s- sort of sustain operations um, that um, and enough of a promise from existing users that like, Hey, this team is onto something. Um, and we're starting to see more and more people building some pretty incredible things with Webflow that it, it, kept building confidence. But early on, it really felt like we were on kind of the razor's edge, razor's edge of deciding to pivot into a, like a fundamentally different persona, a different kind of product to be uh, a lot closer to a traditional kind of um, drag and drop website builder. Well, talk about that razor edge a little bit more, because I think, you know, uh, entrepreneurship is hard, right? Founding a business is hard. Scaling a business is hard. Uh, mm-hmm. But you've, you know, you've talked about previously, you know, how all in, you know, you and your team were cashing 401ks, yeah. right? Yeah. Saddling into deep credit card debt, 
you know, what, mm-hmm. what kept you and the team going through all the hardship, right? What was the, what was just the deep bridled perspective that you had? Cause again, looking, you know, fast forwarding seven, eight years now, it looks completely rational. It's, Hey, it was a trough in the journey. <laughs> right. But yeah. at that point, I'm not sure how many people would actually, you know, go through, you know, that amount of, of personal financial, you know, turmoil for, for holding onto a conviction. What, what kept you guys going? I, if I was being completely honest, it's probably just blind optimism. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because the, the kinds of decisions I made, I would never recommend to a friend, you know, like we were without income for close to a year. I had two kids at the time. We had many, we had like medical emergencies. Then it was living on uh, credit cards, you know, uh, selling cars to convert them into leases so that you have a little bit of cash to, uh, you know, switch to like monthly payments, um, et cetera. I, I think it was just this overall idea of like the, the, the idea, the product, the product idea that we have, the thing that we're building solves our own problem so well, you know, given that we were uh, both Sergi and I and, and um, to an extent, Brian, we're freelance web designers. We're building things for clients, like seeing how much faster it could be with the thing that we were building just gave us enough confidence that, you know, like success is just around the corner. It's just around the corner. It like, even though looking back it, it felt we were on a razor's edge and a lot of times especially in like conversations with my wife and my kids it was you know really felt like the, those are some really hard times especially since I wasn't home that that often and it always felt we didn't really know when that um you know like the the relief would come um it still felt overwhelmingly positive and optimistic in that in that in that time um like whatever we were going to build next was going to make us, you know, uh, was going to make people notice or, um, you know, our first time when we applied to YC, like that was a, we, we had high hopes that, you know, we're going to get in and then everything was going to sort of skyrocket after that. Like that led to a rejection. And the second time when we got in, we thought that that was, uh, going to give, um, uh, kind of like everything was going to be figured out, but, but we got just enough hope at each of those critical moments, uh, that, uh, it was enough to convince everyone involved to like, just, yeah, a couple more months, a couple more months, and then things are going to work out. And it was enough of those, you know, like maybe 10 or, uh, 10 or so of those conversations every two months, um, until, you know, things got more of an, of an even footing. Uh, and then it was kind of up and to the right from there. And so fast forward from your early raise, right? You guys had raised about 2.9 million over a few junctures and, and you've yep. recently raised, you know, a massive round of $72 million. Now, needless to say, um, this isn't a traditional startup journey. You've definitely skipped a few rounds in between and, and it's, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I think you're, I think 72 million is really stretching the definition of a series A also. Right. Um, but it's unique for a host of reasons, right? And, and two jump out to me. So one is obviously to make that kind of jump, you've had to have some sort of focus on you know, profitability at the, at the very least break even. Um, mm-hmm. and, and the second is, you know, you, you were probably at an interesting juncture where I have to imagine some of the internal dialogues was, you know, whether or not you really even wanted to take the money. Right. So talk about right. the focus on break even as you, you know, went from that seed round to, you know, a, a massive institutional fundraise and then more specifically, you know, why you've raised the money and the amount of money you've raised as, at this juncture and, and really, you know, what the vision is on a go forward basis. Yeah, uh, that's a good question. Uh, so early on, you know, when we did the original seed round, uh, and there's like a uh, seed extension six six months later, uh, the 
we never really thought about, okay, how do we get to profitability? How do we get to break even, et cetera? But then as we, as we started to spend that money, you know, you spend that, like, it's surprising how quickly that money gets spent because it's mostly based on hiring, right? Like we needed to hire quite a few people to build, to build like the CMS that we wanted to build. Um, so, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 engineers later, you sort of look at the, at the balance sheet or like the curve of how quickly money is disappearing. And you realize, holy crap, like if this, if this doesn't turn around quickly, you know, we're going, and we're not growing fast enough to, to raise more. Um, and, you know, we, we sort of raise the seed round based on a dream. Um, the next one isn't going to be so easy. We're going to have to so, show some significant traction. Um, we want to avoid like, you know, very significant dilution, et cetera. So we kind of had this realization during that time of like, something has to change. Like we have to really focus on either slowing down our expense growth or increasing our revenue growth and um, kind of made this commitment internally that uh, we, we have to try to get to break even. Um, and about a year later, um, I think we dipped down somewhere below um, quite a bit below a million, but then turned that around where, uh, you know, that started to slowly grow um, and, and build up our balance sheet again. Um, and then we sort of use that as a measure to, as that, as that revenue grew, we added more people. And since sort of late 2015, we've operated in that um, kind of rough rubric of let's just keep growing the company as, as fast as revenue is growing. Um, but over time, like, especially as we uh, got to the last couple of years where we saw the effect that Webflow was having on on the world and on people and on agencies and on freelancers where people are creating entire businesses around Webflow, entire products around Webflow, uh, entire um, kind of uh, service um, departments around Webflow. Like they were so um, kind of deeply ingrained in the ecosystem. They wanted so much more from us because the we're just the very beginning point of like building stuff visually and we saw how much more we needed to build like we need to build not just the, the front end piece but also the back end piece this is the, the way that we imagined it way back in the day uh, to empower people to build way more powerful applications not just websites and if we looked at like how fast we we're growing in terms of revenue um, we could do all that um, but we could do it so much faster uh, if we were able to strategically invest into, you know, some, some product initiatives, some, um, you know, community growth that, that we weren't able to at the time. So that was sort of like the main uh, kind of calculation of seeing the positive impact Webflow has in the world, like our mission to empower people to make a living, like creating software and services without code um, and wanting to get that into as many hands as possible. Uh, in a way that doesn't put the company uh, at risk of running out of money, right? Um, so we weren't even able to, like the way that we were, um, how much cash we had on hand, even though we were break-even and like in some months we were profitable, uh, we couldn't uh, with confidence do something like a no-code conference, which we did a few months ago, uh, because those budgets tend to be quite risky, you know, and you don't get that money back right away. It's a, it's a like a bigger bet on the future and more like on um, kind of creating the category and building your brand and getting people to think about um, uh, kind of the product and the space in general. They don't translate to users right away, paying users right away. Um, so it's having that kind of flexibility to really invest in, um, in things that we really believe will long-term have a lot of value and consider things like acquisitions, consider um, uh, like moving faster along a lot of the dimensions that, that we want to, um, build out around the Webflow ecosystem and create this uh, third-party 
integration platform that we've uh, been focusing on quite a bit. Like all that requires resources, all that requires uh, more money to like buy ahead of time. Um, and that was the key strategic decision of like, um, if we can find a partner that fundamentally believes in our mission and vision that aligns with the values that, that we share in how we treat people, um, in having a similar perspective around like the time horizons, because, you know, Webflow is not going to be sold anytime in the next few decades. We're not going public. We're not, um, like these are not the goals of the company. Like we want to create a fundamentally different way for people to create software. And that's going to take a long time. And that's going to take a lot of, uh, like deliberate, um, investment into some key areas. And it's not just like growth at all costs and how do we increase revenue as fast as possible or how do we build like this monster enterprise business, et cetera. All those things will be important over time. Uh, but for us, it came down to finding that, that right partner that believes in what we believe and, and can help us get there faster. And that's what happened with Excel. Like it was just hands down a, um, like a true partnership, not a, you know, you need, you need us more than we need you or vice versa. It was a, a mutual meeting of the minds of almost like adding another co-founder, um, but a co-founder with uh, not just um, the ability to help us invest in areas that we just didn't have resources to invest in, but also somebody who has access to other companies that have done it before. Like Excel has helped so many product-led companies scale and grow and, and retain their culture and retain the, like what's, um, what's special about those companies uh, without getting in the way. Like that to us was really um really special and it uh, has paid off in spades so far. Like we've been able to uh, grow the profile of the company and, and do so many more things that we probably would have been doing years later anyway, but we were able to do them much sooner, which means those compounding effects are um, much more tangible uh, and you get to see them faster, which is better for um, our customers. It's better for the, for the community, for the ecosystem. It just means more and faster. Um, and it was really important for us to, for that to not change the like the core DNA of the company, and I'm happy that that has not happened. Like it's it's a um, something that just helps amplify our mission at the end of the day. So now you have the resources, right? You've got you've got this underlying business that's really working, and you've got this mm -hmm. vision. You know that Webflow basically becomes a core part of the infrastructure, almost like an operating system layer, right? In, to empower yep. creators. One of the things that I found interesting in your, in your no code, uh, conference keynote, right, was the idea of how we're really just getting started. The web is yep. only 30 years old. Um, it seemingly feels like we've got every product and service at our fingertips, but you talked about how there's a major imbalance between creation and consumption, right? Less mm -hmm. than 1% of the population has the ability to consume. It's, it's mind boggling, you know, when you think about it that way. Talk a little bit more about the framing of uh, you know why we're really just at that kind of one percent juncture and and we're really kicking off this you know this wave into the future into a different way oh yeah that so just to summarize the the data around that like there's 20 around 25 million developers today people who know how to kind of write the code to make these uh you know products and services happen whether it's javascript or ruby on rails or whatever um and pretty much everybody, you know, the half of the world's population that's online uh, is able to consume the sort of the benefits of, of those applications and services, et cetera. Um, but if you think of it sort of, if you take that same measure of uh, like creators uh, versus consumers um, and apply it to, I don't know, something like literacy, like how many people are able to write or know the fundamental building blocks of 
writing something. Maybe they're not a novelist, but they have the the ability to like write an essay or write a memo or write a brief or write like a project proposal or write a, um, or even the first version of a book or whatever. Just the fact that we've created access to, for people to write and get their ideas out there has meant, you know, we've seen the changes that, that have manifested after the Renaissance and after we've empowered more and more of the world to like have that kind of creative power. Um, and, you know, with the internet, we're just getting started. Like the, it might seem that uh, a lot of these, the things that will be created have already been created. Um, but it's, I, I almost, I almost see it as like the early days of uh, video or film right? Where we had so many different types of movies, we had comedies and, and dramas, et cetera. But we really didn't see the, um, the democratization of video until like YouTube and, you know, TikTok and all these uh, things that, that make content creation um, visible to a lot more of the world and make that uh, medium accessible to millions more people, if not tens of millions, if not billions, uh, everybody who now wants to have a voice, create a podcast, create a, like a video series, they can do that without a movie studio in the way or a distribution agency, et cetera. You kind of like, if you put the work in, you can get your work out there, but it's not quite true that that is not true with software, right? It kind of is true if you want to learn how to code. Uh, but that's a much, much bigger barrier, uh, to, to that creation than, than, you know, people, uh, give credit to you. Like if you, if you really, if you really think about it, it's kind of like we're in the telegraph age of uh, communication where there were a lot of companies when, when the main mode of sending messages across, uh, was telegraphs, a lot of companies that were like, all right, we're going to bring a telegraph into every home. We're going to teach every person to, to, you know, um, do Morse code or to understand and, and translate into Morse code. That way, you know, it's a lot more convenient. You don't have to go to a post office or a telegraph operator to send your message. But really the key um, kind of solution to communication wasn't to teach everyone to use Morse code. The solution was to find um, a way to express information in that medium um, or to, to perform that same task using a much more human approach. And that's how we got the telephone, right? Like you just use your uh, skills that you already have uh, and you kind of use your voice and then it comes across to the other person who doesn't have to do a translation uh, kind of effort to, to understand your message. And I think that's the same with software right now. You have to understand way too many different uh, unnecessarily complex things to do things that you might already understand. So somebody might already understand like, hey, there's a market opportunity to create let's say a uh, Airbnb-like um, service that books uh, corporate retreats, right? And they really understand that space. They're like an executive assistant that has worked with many companies, with many, um, uh, you know, uh, real estate providers, and they, and they know how to get a solution there. They know where to find customers. They just don't have the ability to turn that into software. And, and that's what no code, this whole movement is about is like, how do we bring that, that barrier to entry a lot lower so that the people who have, um, you know, that, that idea or that drive to create a solution or a product or service, um, can do that with as few barriers as possible. Um, and it's kind of, um, you can paint a similar, uh, equivalency to something like as, as simple as spreadsheets, right? When, uh, it used to be programmers, only programmers that were able to do things like financial modeling or keeping a, a list of things and uh, doing sort of data transformations. Now, billions of people have access to like Google Sheets and, you know, spreadsheets. That's actually just another way to get computers to do computation for you. And all that took was a 
you know, uh, a drastically different interface model to being able to ask the computer to do work for you. Um, and I think that's what we're trying to do with the no-code movement and a lot of other companies similar to Webflow are trying to do is like identifying those key uh, abstractions and those key problems that people want to solve, but removing all the things that are um, incidental or no longer needed. Um, and it's, it's kind of similar to what Amazon did with hardware, like computer hardware. It used to be that every developer would have to know, all right, how do I buy servers? How do I like replace hard drives? How do I plug these things into the network and run the network hardware? And they had this insight that like really what's important there is that people have access to computing power and they give, gave developers this ability to just say like, hey, I need computing resources. Uh, don't worry about the um, actual physical infrastructure just ask for a computer and you know you'll get one provision for you um and i think we're trying to do the same thing for for software development it's just to get rid of as many of those things that that experts can handle on the back end but you really don't have to know if you're trying to build something um that solves a specific problem uh online there's a different cut of this which is pretty interesting too which is the representation cut right 80 percent of software is created by men 70 percent by white men right software mm -hmm. today is at the earliest of earliest innings, right, of infusing the world's, the full world's population experiences and culture into what's being created. You know, talk about what this type of inclusion, you know, really means for the backbone of the internet from your perspective. Oh, man, it, it has so many, uh, so many implications. Um, it's not just a, you know, uh, kind of traditional gender um, gap uh, in, in software engineering or anything like that. Uh, although that is a factor, but think of it, think of this, let's say you're in Russia uh, or in Nigeria and you want to create something that's very similar to uh, another product in another part of the world that already exists, uh, et cetera. Even to, to get the core foundational skills, uh, let's say programming, um, the vast majority of the resources um, available to learn programming require English, require sort of a mindset of, um, uh, you know, like having to go to Stack Overflow, having to look at like previous uh, work done around a specific problem. And if you don't have, um, if you don't have access to that historical uh, kind of backbone of like errors fixed and like, uh, you know, questions answered in your language, then you're already at a major disadvantage um, to software developers that are starting to learn this stuff in, in the U.S. And if you're, if you're trying to be, um, if you're trying to get into a software engineering, even in the U.S., right, there's all these systemic forces that, that uh, favor specific individuals that have, like, more experience. And just to get more experience, you have to uh, have uh, had, you know, been in, like, some accelerator program X or some, uh, you know, education program Y and all of these things are, are really, really hard to, to fix retroactively because you have to go back, you know, 10 years, et cetera. So the, the no code movement, um, I think it's, it's similar to what happened in, um, with web design initially, because like web design, when it was first starting out in like 98, 99, it wasn't seen as like a, a really, it was seen as more of a, more of a clerical task. Uh, it wasn't seen as something like serious programmers were doing. Uh, but because of that, all sorts of people from all sorts of walk, walks of life, you know, were trying to figure out things like, um, 
where it was GeoCities and Neopets and uh, MySpace to a degree, where, where really like a lot of those barriers were, were removed. Um, and there were no preconceived notions of like who could participate. It wasn't sort of like this thing you needed a computer science degree in order to be a web designer, et cetera. And no code takes that to another level. Like anyone, really anyone who can understand basic logic, anyone that can um, understand how to like um, model a flow of things like, hey, when this happens, I want to do this or I want things to look like this. Everyone without classical training can um, kind of come in in a level playing field. There's still some disadvantages. Like you still have to have like a pretty fast internet connection if you're trying to learn these tools. Uh, pri primarily the, the learning resources for these tools are uh, still in English, even though the interfaces are a lot easier to figure out than, than a lot of the books that you have to read around you know, learning a computer language, like a computer programming language. So it's the barriers going lower and lower into uh, a much more, uh, more natural type of interface where we've had people in, in other countries who don't speak English who figure out a lot of the um, interface just by watching tutorials. Even though they don't understand the language, they can still follow the mouse pointer and see like which icons are being clicked on. And through that develop mastery of um, you know, seeing what they can like teach themselves through the medium. So I, th I think that because the the learning curve is so much so much easier, so much lower than you know going to a computer science degree or going through even like one of these nine month boot camps or learning how to code, that opens up the ability for many more people to participate. Which then means that the chances of somebody being able to build something even smaller and then then realize like the power that that gives them or how much that empowers them to um, kind of impact the world with their product or service or whatever they're trying to sell um, or whatever they're trying to deliver to the world. Like that only inspires them more than that helps them uh, move on to the, like give that gives them confidence to move on to the next thing. And that's the magical thing of like the no code movement right now is just seeing like all the things that people are building. Sure. Not all of them are like, you know, big companies or even like revenue generating ideas. But the fact that you're actually creating now, the fact that you're taking something and putting up, up putting it up on the internet, like that's, I think it's just as magical as, uh, you know, somebody discovering for the first time that they, you know, can create a YouTube show and then have a, uh, a few followers. Like people actually care. People actually are, you know, uh, get value from what you're creating. Um, and the beautiful thing about software is that it's, it's not just, you know, a one way kind of uh, transaction. Uh, if you build something that really solves a core problem, then, then people start to rely on it every day. And then, you know, as a creator, that gives you a lot of confidence and energy to keep improving that and essentially um, get it to a point where people are willing to pay for it and then it can provide you a living. And then it, it's, it's like a great gateway into um, creating something that's mutually beneficial on both sides. You know, Vlad, as we, as we round out the conversation, um, I actually want to, I, I want to kick it back and, and talk about, um, your, your early childhood. You, you came as a refugee at nine from Russia. And one of the things, you know, I've always admired about you, you know, in terms of, you know, the content that you've shared on, on Twitter, um, where I first started following you, the podcast of yours that I've listened, your speeches that I've listened to is, you know, even though you've escaped things like communism, hardship, et cetera, you've, you've always been incredibly uplifting. You know, you've always gone out of your way, actually, to mention, you know, how privileged you are, um, you know, how lucky you and your team have been. I mean, it's, it's truly genuine modesty. Um, talk about the way you think about, you know, privilege, opportunity, perspective. You talked about, you know, in the early days of Webflow, um, you know, having family health situations as, as you guys were getting the company off the ground. Talk a little bit more about how you just 
you think about perspective and, and really what you want most for the tech ecosystem in 2020? Ooh, uh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I think I've seen so many examples of just sheer luck in my life that was not deserved that I can never claim any sort of like meritocratic, uh, you know, backbone to my accomplishments. Sure. I put in a lot of hard work and, and effort into, um, the things that I wanted to build, but I also recognize how much, uh, you know, amazing timing, how much other people's, um, uh, kind of work or selfless work went into making those uh, opportunities happen for me. Uh, and there's so many examples of, you know, even leaving Russia, like we, um, we had to go through this application process that my parents didn't even want to go through, to be honest, because they were, um, you know, I don't want to say brainwashed, but it believed the Russian propaganda enough that, you know, life is not peachy in America. Um, and it took my grandma applying kind of in secret, uh, and then having kind of like this, this guy that just happened to be in town, that was going to fly to Moscow, hand in the documents. Uh, and then my cousins who lived down the street, who she filled out the same documents um, around the same time, just a day later, but she couldn't send them with that same guy, it had to be mailed. Uh, they didn't end up coming to this country in the same uh, way that we did. Like they had an opportunity 10 years later to, um, to come to um, something around 10 years later to come to America, which, you know, fundamentally changes the amount of time that you can spend here and how much you can like, benefit from the American education system, et cetera. That's literally like an hour's worth of like difference in um, things that are outside of my control that completely changed how my life could have happened if we were on the other side of that. Right. Um, and even thinking through, you know, the entire refugee program that we uh, came here under, like I, I'm really thankful that the U S government was open to that. Like it had to be the right president at, at the time who had like compassion for refugees, et cetera. But I also recognize that, you know, I think it was mostly because uh, the people who were advocating for it were, um, you know, my, my family's religion, like we came on religious grounds. Um, and it was people who uh, kind of identified with our same religion, which is like Protestant, you know, Christianity or whatever, that were pitching the government around like, hey, this persecution's happening in Russia, let's, let's help these people out. I also recognize that probably wouldn't have happened if, it, if I was in another country that wasn't a um, you know, the majority of religion in the U.S. that people sort of like empathize with more, right? Like we are already seeing kind of a, a much more, a much less empathetic um, kind of approach that we have to many different kinds of refugees right now, whether it's like from Mexico or from other countries. Um, that That is a, how can I claim any sense of, um, you know, superiority when, when all these things happen from like sheer luck and being of the like majority group and, uh, kind of having all those, all those things, um, really work out in my favor. So for me, it really, it really helps keep perspective, um, around, uh, like some, sometimes people claim that it makes me less ambitious, you know, like seeing how, uh, how lucky I've been to, uh, you know, be, come to America and like benefit from, from living here, et cetera. Um, but I don't know, like, I, I don't really see it that way. I kind of, it, it helps me be more content and, and focus on things that truly matter, uh, like getting this, um, like really taking care of the people that work at Webflow, really trying to take care of the customers that, that we serve, really trying to um, expand Webflow's mission into a lot more hands so that it benefits a lot more people um, and, and not really some like search for more power or influence or popularity or whatever.
if, if I'm being honest, like that stuff actually kind of freaks me out. It just means <laughs> a lot more pressure on my, on my shoulders and I'm a, like an introvert through and through. So I kind of want to stay out of uh, the public spotlight, et cetera. Uh, in fact, I'm probably a lot more nervous being on this podcast than, than I sound. Um, but I don't know. It just, it just helps to always think back to what my life could have been um, if, if uh, a lot of things didn't line up correctly. Um, and a lot of those things happened because, um, you know, of things, things that I didn't work for. Um, and, and people who might not be like me um, are, have a lot more disadvantages that um, it, it just really honestly ticks me off sometimes when people just say like, hey, look, I, I pulled myself up on my bootstraps. Uh, then everybody can do it, but it sort of completely like hides the fact that um, a lot of the systems that we have in place today, especially in America, are uh, you know completely set up to advantage um, to have more advantages for the majority groups or majoritized groups than they uh, do for minoritized groups, and like we have to recognize that that experience is really different for people who uh, haven't had those like systemic advantages. Um, and when I think about the tech ecosystem, um, I, I think I, I've already started to see some of these, uh, kind of shifts start to happen. Uh, but I would love to, I would love to see a continuation of, um, treating people as a lot more central than like business results. Uh, you know, there's sort of like the traditional model of capitalism has been, you know, this Friedman doctrine where it's kind of like this idea that, if you solve for shareholder value, then everything else falls into place. But I think that um, has caused uh, quite a bit of like, I would even call it like toxic thinking or, or a little bit of like washing away of accountability where, you know, if we get shareholders to be richer or like more um, uh, kind of have, I guess, deeper or more money in their pockets, uh, somehow all these other problems will, will work themselves out. It's sort of like the trickle down, um, idea, but I think, you know, we have to, we have to have like a much more nuanced conversation around, um, what, uh, how we should be treating, um, not, not, not just like the people who work at, uh, at tech companies, uh, but in how we're just looking at the entire space of what, technology can do for the world um if it's primarily seen as a all right this is a way for some people to get rich then we're going to have um end up in like more and more toxic situations where you know we see a lot of this with like the gig, gig economy and you see a lot of there's a lot of benefits to that but there's also uh, a lot of um like social issues that that causes where you know it's it sort of puts the onus a lot more on individuals that are trying to survive than on companies that that are sort of absolving themselves of some responsibility um and i'd love tech to shift more into that um you know to think of like the impact that it has on not just uh, uh you know its customer base but also on society at large and um kind of continue this trend of having more accountability speaking more truth to power of, of people who um are have like these lofty positions, including venture capitalists, including CEOs like myself, et cetera. Um, and, and I, I hope that trend continues, um, because that, that is something that the world needs more of. Um, I think we're past the time where, you know, we can assume that, um, the people, the people in power are always going to make the right decisions. Um, 
yeah, I don't know if that makes sense, but that's sort of my general thinking about it. I, I couldn't agree more. I'm glad. No, thanks so much for sharing your perspectives, but, but most presciently, really, your, your humility and, and modesty. It, it, it's so refreshing, you know, to hear someone I'm, that has... I'm the, most, I'm the most modest person in the world. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it really is refreshing, you know, to hear, to hear um, you know, such genuine and such down-to-earth perspective. I'm, I'm really glad you were able to you know, make the time to get today. Thanks again so much for joining us and really enjoyed having you on. I had a blast. Thank you so much for having me.